Welcome to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Welcome to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack. And today our guest is Kavita Baratake, and she is a founder of Cherry Street Investments. She's an Austin-based real estate investor with over 12 years of real estate investing experience. And as an investor, she's successfully acquired, rehabbed, managed, owned, and operated several single-family and multifamily investment properties in the Central Texas area. She also sponsors real estate syndications and multifamily, built-to-rent, townhome communities, senior living, and land banking investments. She also conducts regular webinars, which are posted on her YouTube channel, Cherry Street Investor Education. So make sure you say hi to her over there as well. Kavitha, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Great. Thank you for having me, Eileen. And thank you for pronouncing my name so perfectly. (laughs) (laughs) It's a beautiful name. So... (laughs) Kavita, can you share with us a little bit more about your background and how you got started with real estate? Sure. So I was your plain vanilla engineer. I did my undergrad in computer science and spent about 20 years in the tech industry, working in various roles across different companies like IBM and Atlassian. Somewhere along the way, I think what really spurred me or pushed me into real estate interesting story. It was around 2008. I was not only invested, my entire had invested my entire retirement, like everybody else, right? You have retirement accounts and you're forced to invest in a certain set of assets on, you know, whatever custodian you're using, Fidelity, Vanguard, whatever. I had my entire retirement in the markets uh, across different funds. And I thought I was really well diversified. You know, you say, okay, 10% allocation or 20% small cap, large cap, you know, you know, the whole story of how you allocate across different assets within the stock and bond markets. And I thought I was well diversified until I saw my stock market or my entire retirement account really being half of what it was. And that was a rude shock to me because I'm like, oh, this happens now. I've just lost years of growth in that account, right? Because when you read, Everything says, oh, 10% average a year. Well, that's a good year, or maybe that's an average year. But when you get these kind of setbacks where 50% of your value is lost in like just a few months, it takes a long time to recover just that, right? So for me, that was a rude awakening on the fact that I wasn't really diversified. And I also was coincidentally playing in the options market. I was trading options. So I made big money. I lost big money in the options market. It was like a roller coaster ride. And I was tired of the roller coaster ride and the emotional upswings and downswings. And I wasn't quite the trader I thought I was, unemotional about money. Um, bottom line, I turned to real estate, bought my first house in Austin in 2009. Actually, it was my second house, but yeah, my first investment property for $98,000, which turned out to be a gold mine. So I still have that house. I refinanced it several times. I put 20% down, you know, as every initial real estate investor would. And I was hesitant about getting into real estate because, you know, everybody has horror stories of being a landlord. But 
for me, over a period of time, I turned out well. I did the real estate. I did the single family thing. I went to multifamily in 2017 and then uh, was a passive investor there and then became an active GP investor in 2019. So from there went from multifamily to land development to other projects as well. So it's been a progression and somewhere along the way, I realized I'm financially free. So I quit my job a few years later. I didn't wait right as soon as I was like, oh, this works. I quit my job when I was ready to transition about 20 years into tech. So when you are looking at your retirement funds, when you are investing in like the 401ks and your retirement, it's it's shocking sometimes when the market goes up and down and you have no control over it. And even myself, you know, especially recently when the stock took a hit, I try not to look at it at all because I'm like, that's just going to give me a heart attack. (laughs) So it's almost kind of like you have to put it out of sight, out of mind in a sense, and then just making sure that it's being managed correctly. But if you're looking at it constantly, it's definitely nerve wracking. (laughs) Right. Especially the crypto accounts. You don't look at them. You just put them and forget about it. Kiss it goodbye. You know, if it grows, it grows. So, so. Can you give us a little bit more color around how did you walk your way up to financial freedom through real estate from that first house that you bought in Austin? And was it all through just investing and saving through your normal W-2? How did you get to that point? It was mostly that. Uh, and I, I was to, to compound it, like I was a single mom uh, throughout this whole journey. I have been a single mom. So I didn't really have the luxury of two incomes. So I always tell people if I could do it on a single income, you can, (laughs) on dual income, you know, like most of my clients are husband, wife, and they might have some kids, they might not. But either ways, I feel like when you have dual income, you should have the ability to save more as well. So definitely was a lot of cost cutting and really watching my budget initially. But after a while, I think it's this snowball effect where let's say I've invested in one property, I'm able to refi and pull the cash out. And I did the whole Burr strategy, which is called BRRR or something. I didn't know what that was, but it just makes sense because this whole name came about much later because I think Bigger Pockets was instrumental in calling it BRRR strategy, which is a buy, a renovate, refinance. And something else or rent refinance, rent and refinance. So I did the same strategy, but I didn't know what it was a strategy. I just, it just made sense. I bought this house for less than 100,000. In a few years, it appreciated. I was able to renovate and refinance it and then use that money towards buying another house. And then I also incidentally had bought a house in India that I sold and brought back money home, money to Austin and bought, ended up buying more houses with it. So houses were great, but I think after 10 or 11 of them, I reached my breaking point where I'm like, I can't do this anymore because I was managing it myself. I was doing a full-time job and I have a daughter who's now 18. So back then she was still in high school. So I was dealing with a lot of stuff, which is why I started looking at passive investments because I was like, okay, this is too much. Now I need to figure out how to scale better. And so really where I am right now is how am I, how am I going to reduce the amount of work I'm doing and make it more passive? Because even though rentals are considered passive, 
it's not truly passive, right? Like when you're hold, holding in a house and you have tenants, you might have a property manager, but you're still somewhat involved. So I want to be, as I grow my portfolio, I want to be more and more further removed from too much work and spend my time traveling the world and doing things which are fun. So, yeah. You're still having to manage the property manager and still having to make those big decisions because if you take you out of the equation, everything kind of stops almost in a sense. It's not truly passive. That's what I tell my investors now. When you invest in a single family home, it's not really truly passive. Although it is considered passive income per IRS and it gives you great tax advantages because even if let's say your rental is making $20,000, if you can create $20,000 in depreciation, you can offset the two and you're really making tax-free money from this house. But then again, yields have reduced in most markets, right? Texas, it's hard to buy a house that the numbers make sense. Uh, and then it's hard to uh, keep up with property taxes and all the increases of that COVID and post-COVID has brought inflation. So actually, my goal is to reduce my houses and transition those to other investments in the next five years. So when you were buying and managing the properties on your own and decided to transition into more of a passive role by investing in syndications, was that a difficult transition for you? Because one, you were making all the decisions and having that control over your entire investment, but now going into syndication into a passive role, you're relinquishing a lot of that control over and the decision-making to another operator sponsor. 100%. It's hard. I'm a control freak. That makes it harder. <laughs> so I admit, and definitely was hard. But the way I looked at it, I started investing most of my retirement because I rolled over my 401k from a previous employer when I quit into an IRA, like a self-directed IRA. And I started investing that into real estate initially. So my thought process was, okay, I have an IRA. I would normally have had this in the stock market. Do I have any control on that? None, zero. So it's no different as long as I can figure out who the sponsors are that I trust and I can work with. I think I'll be all right. And plus there's an asset really to account for this versus I feel like you know, obviously in the stock market, there are assets, every company has assets, but those assets are a little bit less tangible because there's a, not a dollar for dollar, you know, asset there because it's more de- based on the stock values, based on supply and demand for the stock, right? So in my mind, it was really safer still to do real estate as long as I, and I always tell people this is that as long as you have a good rapport with your sponsor, you have someone to go ask the questions and make you feel comfortable. It's nice to not be, be in the center of making all the decisions because <laughs> we have too many decisions to make already in our lives, uh, everywhere with our kids, with our jobs, with our with our relationships. So I feel like those fueled pure decisions for me to make and I'm okay being a passive. I'm still a passive. In spite of doing my own deals, I'm still a passive. When you talked about taking your retirement funds and rolling that into a self-directed IRA, you know, society and how we've been told is don't touch that retirement fund, just keep it sitting in there and let it grow. And over time, when you hit, you know, retirement age, you're able to pull it out. When you made that conversion from pulling out that money into your own self-directed IRA and reinvesting that into real estate, 
what was the biggest challenge that you had? And did you feel comfortable with doing something like that? Yeah, I don't remember having any issues with that because one, people have this misconception that I am pulling money out of my retirement account, hence I'm going to be subject to taxes. You're not. It's a rollover, right? It's still retirement account to retirement account. There's no taxation involved there. Two, uh, you only roll over as you find investments. So what I had done was my 401k was still invested the way it was before. And I moved it to a regular IRA, like a, a IRA that I, I could still invest in diversify into the market. Now, as I needed funds and I found investments that were interesting for me, whether it was real estate or some other alternative investments. So a lot of people are not aware that you can invest in almost anything. You can buy gold, you can buy silver, you can buy, invest into real estate, you can do uh, buy a painting even with your IRA, a self-directed IRA. So as I found interesting investments that I felt comfortable with after doing my due diligence, I started rolling over parts of my 401k into my self-directed IRA and then investing that into whatever investment came up, which was essentially a private placement offering that I invested into. We love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. Now, we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us, because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about, serving you, our listener, at a higher level and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. You are managing all your properties, single mother, working, still working your W-2 job. How are you finding time to do all this? And what continue to drive the need to, you know, find those passive incomes and different types of investment assets and, and you know, essentially outside of your working job, still having time and energy to do other things, um, you know, instead of just like relaxing or doing some other things, but instead focusing on building up your portfolio. Um, I think some people are just driven to do some things. I don't know. I always wanted to own a business, do my own thing. Um, I was good at what I did. I was good at technology, but I just didn't feel like that was it for me. And I also didn't, I don't subscribe to the traditional work till you're 65 philosophy. I don't believe in that. And I think that by the time you're 65, you're too too old, too sick to probably travel and do the things you really want to do in your life. So I love traveling. I've tra- traveled like 44 countries, 45 And then I want to continue doing that. So all of those things, and I realized, you know, a full-time job for the rest of my life is not the way I want to go. So I really need to figure out how to create enough passive income that I could choose what I want to work on. And maybe it is a full-time job. It doesn't really matter, but it is going to be on my terms because I'm no longer tied to this concept of I have to work to pay my bills. I have my bills paid and I can work on whatever I want was the point that I always wanted to be right from when I started. So 
I think when you are driven to find, driven to a goal, we all have time. (laughs) I think having no time is an excuse that we make when we don't have the inclination to do something. But when we have the inclination and we have the drive, we find the time. For the investments that you had gotten into and participated in, what were some of the criteria you're looking for that made it a good deal for you to continue to fuel your goal of you know building up that passive income? So with single family homes, initially, I was just looking at that 1% rule, uh, which was very doable in the Texas markets at the time, where if you bought a property for, let's say, uh, $200,000, it had to make $2,000 in income a month. Uh, that usually is a very quick rule of thumb to buy a property. Uh, but when it comes to passive investments, I found it a lot trickier because I actually ended up joining a group to learn about how to evaluate passive investments, uh, to ask the sponsor the right question, to understand how the depreciation uh, works, what's bonus depreciation, what's cost segregation. There were so many terms out there that are thrown around that you really want to spend some time learning about those things. And that's what I do now with my webinars is that my goal is when someone walks through the door green like me, but I was 12 years ago, uh, or even less than that, five, ten, six years ago, how do I get them to the point where they feel comfortable with these terms and what they're getting into, how they're able to evaluate an investment when it's presented to them and to shake out things which are, obvious red flags sometimes in these deals. So not everything that's promised is going to happen. They're all projections. So understand that and know what you're walking into and be able to ask the right questions and work with people you trust, right? And it's hard to do that initially because you don't know anybody, but ask around and ask for references, talk to people who have invested before, ask for advice. So don't be afraid to ask the questions that you need to to be, to be comfortable. In addition to real estate and investing, you also implement um, you know, in, this infinite banking as well for yourself. Can mm-hmm. you share how you're utilizing it and how you got started with infinite banking? So yeah, that's an interesting segue from real estate because as you as I got into real estate and started meeting more people, I realized so many things that I didn't know before. And uh, one was taxes. The second was using a life insurance policy because I had always been told uh, buy term and invest the difference. A lot of people have heard that, right? Very made very famous by Dave Ramsey. And so I prescribed to that philosophy and invested the difference in bought term. But then further along the way, the when I learned about infinite banking, it was like a Eureka moment for me. I'm like, this makes so total sense. The younger you are, the better it is because the cost of insurance is low. You're setting a permanent policy into place. You can use this policy to buy your house, to invest into assets passively or otherwise. And it just made a whole lot of sense where, okay, I have an asset here earning 6 7% a year seems low. And people are like, oh, it's not a great investment. And I'm like, it's not an investment. Think about it as a bank account. And now I'm able to leverage that asset, borrow against it by collateralizing it. So the money continues to grow in this policy. But and it continues to compound more importantly, but then I can collateralize it to go invest this dollars that I own here into another asset, which might potentially give me 
12% interest rate, let's say. So I borrow for five, invest for 12, arbitrage, right? So to me, it was just like a whole world opened up. I wanted to set up my account, approached a few people, and I didn't get all the answers that I wanted. So I studied enough that I just got my insurance license and started doing it for my investors. So I started writing policies for myself, for them, and you know, kind of expanded that. So it's now become a part of my business. So a lot of people, when they talk about infinite banking, you know, have a certain liquidity to be able to put down for the down payment, like $100,000 per year or something like that, to be able to make it worth the investment or like to have it balloon at the end. Um, Is that the case for you? Or how does that work for people who might not have the $100,000 initially to put into a life insurance policy? Sure. Yeah. No, you definitely don't need to overfund the policy with a big amount upfront, but rather think about it as how can I contribute, let's say maybe $20,000 a year into the policy for five years. Now I have $100,000 into the policy and it continues to compound while I borrow against the policy and go invest that $100,000 somewhere. This is actually really perfect because some investors come up and tell me, Hey, I don't have the $75,000, which is your minimum in a passive investment, but I only have 20. And I'm like, okay, maybe you can start setting up a policy and accumulating that 20,000 every year for five years. And now I can show you, okay, how to leverage that policy and reinvest it into uh, a syndication or even go buy your own house with it. It doesn't really matter what your strategy is because the policy, a life insurance policy can be used for any purpose. It's really a flexible tool. I think about it as as good as having a bank account, which is yielding you 6-7%, but also giving you an option to invest with it while it continues to still grow. Because when you remove money from a bank account into an asset, into investment, the money is zeroed out. So your compounding effect is zero. So here, I always have a chart to show people how compounding matters when when you're trying to snowball and grow your money. So if we take that 20000 per year investment as an example, and if you're looking to invest in an opportunity that requires a 50000 or $100,000 down, do you have to set it up well in advance to be able to start accumulating the uh, growth in that life right. insurance policy? Yes, you do. So let's say usually uh, what I tell people, the way we set up policies Usually by year five, you have every dollar you put into the policy ready to be deployed. Year one, usually you don't have 100% because remember, it's still a life insurance policy. What you have is permanent life insurance that you can carry till death and a place that you can use as a retirement funding as well. So let's say you set up a policy with 20000 a year for seven years. You've contributed 20 times seven, which is 140000 and now you can borrow against the policy day day three. Like if you contribute 20, you can borrow, let's say, 75, 80% of the policy day three. But of course, you have to find an investment that makes it worthwhile, right? Like you have to find another place to park it that makes it uh, profitable enough for you to borrow at like five and a half percent and invest it maybe at 12. So as long as you can do that, you can borrow day one, but generally to build up momentum where you can invest passively in something, you want to have a couple, at least 75,000, let's say, or 50,000 in a policy. 
So it'll take, it might take you a couple of years, but it's a great place to start creating retirement as well as investment uh, dollars. Because the biggest thing people forget is it's, it's tax-free growth. There are very few vehicles for tax-free growth. And when you take into account taxes, the yield drops significantly. It's like 20, 30% or maybe in California, 50%. <laughs> gone in taxes. That's 50% you don't have in growth, right? Huge numbers. So when I show people illustrations of tax-free growth versus taxed growth, it's a huge eureka moment. You're like, you can contribute the same dollar every year. And I'll show you the difference between tax-free growth and tax growth. It makes a huge difference. So that's why it's better than a a regular bank account because it's tax-free growth. So, Kavita, how has real estate investing impacted your life? Gosh, I'm here because of it. Um, it's ch- changed my life completely. I was—I remember when I first put my job and I walked my daughter to um, her school bus. I hadn't done that ever. That was the first time because I didn't have to be on calls. I choose when to work and what to work on. So, I think. It's not so much money. It's not any of those things. It's that lifestyle to choose when you want to do and what you want to do. And for me, that's priceless. And what is the one thing that you know now about real estate that you wish you knew when you first started? I wish there was one thing. (laughs) If there was one thing, I think I would pick knowing that I can invest in syndications and knowing that I could invest in all these assets, which I didn't know because everybody, when they start in real estate, they think the only way to approach real estate is to buy a house and be a landlord. And that's a scary proposition for most people because they don't want to be like, oh my God, someone's calling me in the night, broken pipe or clogged toilet. That's everybody's worst nightmare when they think real estate. But I wish I had known about syndication sooner. I might have gotten started 10 years early. And what is the one thing that sets the successful people apart in real estate investing? I want to say mindset. Because what I've found is people get really scared in times like this uh, when things are bad. But I feel like what makes people successful is that they are ready to take action and be decisive. And that's all in our heads when things are bad, because that's when the opportunities are. Because people can always look back and say, oh, I wish I had bought more when 2008 happened. But people were shit scared back then. (laughs) People were afraid to take those risks because it seemed like we'll never get out of this. But the truth is you will always get out of uh, downturn, right? You'll always get out of recession. This market is cyclical. Everybody knows that. But yet still people get frozen with fear when that happens. And I think overcoming that fear and being able to invest in spite of the fear is all in our heads. And so for me, mindset is what really makes a person successful in real estate or any kind of investment. Kavita, where can our listeners find out more about you and what you're doing? Uh, I have a website. It's uh, My company is called Cherry Street Investments. So you can go to cherrystreet.us. Or you can go to YouTube channel, uh, Cherry Street Investor Education. I put out a lot of free education. I do webinars every two weeks on a wide range of investment, tax, uh, legal. And I'm actually having like a, a, a seminar coming up for special needs parents, special needs kids' parents 
to how to organize and set up trusts for special needs kids. So I try to cover a whole range of topics. And so there's a lot of education out there, uh, financial education for kids as well, under 18. So yeah, you can find me either of those two places. Uh, They're all linked. Oh, thank you so much for all of your time, Kavita. Of course. Thank you for having me here. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. If you're anything like Zayla and me and believe that real estate investing is a great way to create passive income and build long-term wealth, check out our free apartment syndication due diligence checklist for passive investors at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Zayla and I created this checklist for ourselves as we evaluated different multifamily syndication opportunities as a passive investor. So we would love to share it with you so you can use it as a resource as well. Download your free copy today at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonavestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.